Hello, this is the Independent Research Forum podcast with John Riding from RDQ Economics. The IRF was founded to introduce best-of-class independent research providers to potential clients. I'm JP Smith and it's my pleasure to moderate periodic podcasts and other events. In this podcast, John is going to bring some context and clarity to what has become an increasingly polarised debate around the state of the US economy and financial markets. John Riding has enjoyed a distinguished career in academia, public service and investment banking, most recently as Chief US Economist for Bear Stearns, before founding RDQ in the wake of the great financial crisis. Working with his colleague, Conrad de Quadros, clients of RDQ Economics have two seasoned, independent economists on retainer for meetings, presentations and views on the economic outlook and investment strategies. I'm going to start by asking John to briefly outline his experience and the thought and database process behind some recent calls, including a very early recognition that US inflation would not prove to be so transitory. Over to you, John. Well, JP, that's um, quite a question. By way of uh, background, I grew up my formative uh, years uh, in the 1970s, uh, went to Cambridge University and studied economics. And in 1980, when uh, Mrs. Thatcher was uh, prime minister in the UK, was headed to what was uh, then the deepest uh, recession uh, since the um, Great Depression, I uh, went into uh, central banking and became an economist at the Bank of England. Um, There, I gravitated towards um, economic forecasting, Uh, Amongst the other jobs I had there, I ran the economic forecasting group. And that, more than anything else, makes you data-based. When you face uh, every quarter going back and looking at your errors and asking why you made mistakes, that is just a very important grounding. So we have, I, I believe economics matters. My training at Cambridge University was fairly eclectic, uh, exposed to a, a wide range of views. And one of the key things to know is that so many views may have a relevant insight. But if physics hasn't created a, a unified physics and glued together uh, relativity and string theory, um, economics is far, far further behind. And so uh, the different... Uh, Approaches to economics may have valid insights. And the key thing is bringing those insights and data together to try and uh, get a working model of the world. Uh, Anyway, I went to the Bank of England, uh, spent nine years there, came to the United States to work for the Federal Reserve Bank of New York for two years. Uh, And then in 1991, I was hired by... uh, in his latest position, the head of the National Economics Council, Larry Kudlow. Back then, he was the chief economist of Bear Stearns. uh, And I worked at Bear Stearns from 1991 until uh, Bear Stearns failed in 2008, at which point Conrad de Quadros, who you mentioned, who had worked with me uh, since 1999, uh, we started uh, RDQ uh, Economics because we realized we had an audience. We realized we had Uh, a number of people out there who followed what we thought, who liked the approach of mixing economic insights with data, 
You mentioned uh, before we came online, you're an economic historian. I happen to think that a study of history and historical events needs to be mixed in very much with uh, mathematics and, and much of modern economics. And quite frankly, and when you mention markets, uh, the uh, actions of many market participants are too grounded in math uh, and don't have that appreciation of history. Yeah, this is music to my ears, John. <laughs> but exactly. You can think of, for a moment, the great financial crisis, which ended Bear Stearns. Uh, part of that was people, quants, putting on trades where their trades were mathematically matched between the uh, their assets and their liabilities, but they didn't have the historical background to appreciate that you can't take funding for granted. And when the funding went away, these fantastic mathematical trades fell apart and there were tremendous losses uh, across uh, the financial markets, financial institutions, banks, uh, and, and necessitated the uh, rescue under the uh, TARP program uh, and, and other things, other emergency programs, which was our first taste, that was 2009, uh, was our first taste uh, of the central bank playbook that uh, was then used during the pandemic. So in terms of, you talked about some of our calls, I, I think there's really two things on investors' minds at the moment. The first is inflation, and the second is uh, the uh, risk of uh, recession. So I'm going to start with inflation. Inflation was something that people, many people thought had gone away. And even as people at the Fed, policymakers at the Fed, whose obsession became the inflation rate is too low. Now, as a child of the 70s, I don't think that that is a uh, sound mindset. I don't think it's a, a good way of thinking. We, we had the problem of a slippery slope of inflation in the late 1960s that led to the 1970s inflation. And the Federal Reserve became committed to raising the inflation rate. And that for me, was a, uh, a first in, in U.S. central banking history. Uh, Japan had tried it. Very different historical background. Their, their problems began in 1990. They took many years before they addressed problems in the banking system. Um, and at that point, uh, the uh, poor state of the uh, banking system, negative capital and everything w was in place. It wasn't just a, a deflationary event. Uh, but, but I think people took away some of the wrong lessons of so the risk of deflation, the, diff the importance of getting inflation up. And it really is a case of careful what you wish for, uh, because we are now sat with an inflation rate in old fashioned consumer price index terms of 8.6% year over year. Uh, and the Federal Reserve scrambling uh, to raise interest rates fast enough uh, to try and restore its credibility and get inflation under control. Can I can I just ask you about a couple of points there, John? So so why did the Fed underestimate inflation? Because even as a as an economic historian, I was sitting there two years ago, thinking, you know, this is madness. It has to be inflationary, and you know, the only way that you can really deal with this is is to buy real assets. But at the time, it seems the Fed had maybe two things on its mind, and you can tell me if I'm wrong about this. The first thing is what I would call a more inclusive mandate, where they're looking at employment and particularly maybe employment amongst minorities. And obviously, they're terrified about the effect that the pandemic would have. I mean, that latter point is, is I guess, fairly obvious. 
the other point is if we think back to the aftermath of the great financial crisis, I worked for a Swiss bank at the time, and the Swiss bankers, when when QE came along for the first time, which was what, was it late 2008, I think, I think from memory, something like that, were running around saying, this is inflationary, it's terrible. And, and I kind of said to them, no, no, it isn't, but I, I'm not sure why. And, and actually, in retrospect, the reason, I guess, and, and again, tell me if this is an invalid way of looking at it, is, is that the velocity of money stayed low because the rewards, the fruits of low interest rates rent to a relatively small number of people, a small group of people at the top end of the income scale? A great question. I, I think part of the issue is why did the Fed miss inflation as a problem? And partly it comes down to economics um, and, that is, and partly it comes down to fighting the last battle in a sense. So for the last decade plus, the Fed had worried really since the uh, great financial crisis that the inflation rate was too low. It was trying to target a 2% inflation rate, and the inflation rate was coming in uh, somewhere between one5 and 2%, but generally falling short of 2%. And that lulled them into a false sense of security. I've asked a number of Fed policymakers in public uh, forums uh, how why did the Fed miss this inflation problem? Why didn't you conduct what I like to call basic monetary analysis? And this ties in with your velocity point. So if we go back to one core economic idea, very old economic idea, um, the quantity equation. Let's not confuse it with the quantity theory of money, just the quantity equation that money times its velocity, the number of times it turns over, has to equal the average price level times the number of transactions or real output, however you want to think of it. MV equals PT in the classic Fisher equation. Now, if you can imagine um, that equation in your head, hard, I know, but the Fed through QE planned to raise the money supply a lot. And to your point on fiscal policy, it wasn't simply raising the money supply to buy assets from the banks, as it did during the great financial crisis. It was raising the money supply and, and the bonds that it bought, the funding of that was being used directly to support incomes of households. Necessary, absolutely, in the early stage of the pandemic, but M was going up a lot. On the other side, because of public health considerations and the desire of uh, households to uh, survive the pandemic, the number of transactions was going to go down a lot. So you were going to have an equation that has to be balanced by definition. It's not a theory. It's an identity. M was going up a lot, and the number of transactions of real output was going down a lot. Now, the Fed worried that prices were going to fall, or the inflation rate was going to be even lower. So P was going to fall in the Fed's model. What? Why? Because they, they think that inflation is linked to the underemployment of uh, resources, um, the so-called Phillips curve uh, model of inflation. And the only way that could balance would be if velocity collapsed. And it would have to collapse, again, going back to history, faster than it collapsed during the Great Depression when 9,000 banks in the US failed for that whole arithmetic to work out. It's not even complicated math. It's, it's arithmetic. Um, and, and so for us, the idea that we were going to see such a collapse in velocity when money was being injected directly into U.S. households seemed implausible. 
So despite the fact we'd had this history of very low inflation for uh, a couple of decades, the degree of monetary injection ought to have led people to think, even though it's not in my data set for the last 20 years, we were going to have an inflation problem. So for I, I asked a, a number of uh, Fed officials, and the typical response might have been, well, we were kind of lulled into a false sense of security by how low inflation had been. And thinking about that, the pandemic began um, in early March uh, of 2020. That's the shutdown in New York, for example, was the middle of March. In September of 2020, the Fed, in terms of how it was organizing monetary policy, was to try and raise the average inflation rate up to 2%. Now, in the next couple of years, we're not, we're not even two years into this, the Fed has significantly, significantly overshot that. And now they have an inflation rate that they, in their own words, is far, far too high. Now, the question is, how do, when thinking about that inflation, what, what's the big mistake that's made here? The mistake is, I think, that the Fed thinks of inflation like something to be regulated. It's a result of external shocks. I'd like to call it the, the lemony snicket theory of inflation for those who may have read the book, uh, uh, a, uh, an, uh, a Series of Unfortunate Events. We had the pandemic. We had the reopening. We had chip shortages. We had Delta. We had Omicron. Now we've got this truly awful war giving in, in Ukraine, giving us supply shocks. Uh, Europeans are more familiar. We're going to feel more of the brunt of it in terms of energy prices, utility bills, uh, in terms of food prices. And this is something that the Fed has to regulate. So the Fed's thinking of this as, as really not their fault. They just didn't identify the problem as not being transitory. Where, in fact, the Fed had created the monetary backdrop for those one-time price shocks to become part of an inflation process. And this is the real battle that we are facing right now, the Fed is facing right now. Can they head off an inflationary process that starts to become really entrenched in expectations as it did in the 1970s? Or can they pull off putting that inflation genie back into the bottle and, and that's really where we are on the inflation battlefront. But the Fed's mindset is still not that they were responsible in any way for this inflation, except for the fact they didn't identify it and tackle it soon enough. We're going further back, and you, you can look at our writings on this monetary analysis point, that one should have realized that there was going to be a problem. And at a minimum, last year in 2021, when we started to get discomforting inflation readings, a central banker who was thinking about managing risks might have said, <clears throat> well, we haven't seen it in recent years, but maybe the risk is inflation and we need to lean against it. But the Fed continued to ease. They continued to buy $120 billion of government bonds and mortgage-backed securities throughout 2021, pretty much until the end of the year when they started tapering back, even though those inflation numbers were discomforting and largely dismissing the pickup in inflation uh, as being a, a transitory reopening pickup. So that's a sort of, I mean, would you say that's a sort of, if you like, institutional inertia 
um, and as you say, founded as well on their experience of the post um, post GF GFC world and a failure to recognise that actually things have things have changed. So, so what you're saying essentially is that the risk clearly is that these um, expectations regardless of how much of the current inflation is generated by supply shocks, external supply shocks, and how much is generated by the increase in the money supply. And what you're saying anyway is that the latter is a, you know, forms a basis and then the, and, and things just end up building and building. So maybe we should just briefly address the labour market and what's happening there. And in a way, and again, tell me if I'm wrong, but like you, I've been around in the markets for quite a long time. And I remember the aftermath of the dot-com bubble. When a lot of people, if you recall, left their jobs and went off to new uh, firms and dot coms, they weren't being paid, but they had lovely work conditions and lots of share options. And I think a lot of those people ended up coming back into the labour market later when the bubble burst. And I'm just wondering, with the great resignation, so-called, people leaving the labour force this time around, upward pressure, obviously, on wages, if we're likely to see something similar over the next six months to a year. So in other words, the labour market cooling down and again, that contributing perhaps to the Fed being able to perhaps not increase interest rates by as much as people were thinking a month or so ago. And, and then added to that, maybe the wealth effect and what impact the wealth impact will have, because obviously, as we know from all the surveys and, and, and studies on this, the majority of shares are held by the top 10% of the population. Yes, people have 401ks, which, is, which are obviously very important. Um, but, 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 but again, recently, particularly with the increase in crypto amongst perhaps minorities and millennials who seem to be disproportionately represented, are we likely to see a wealth effect from that as well? So you've got the, the share market, the equity market in the US falling by up to 20%, and you've obviously got a tumble in, in crypto as well. Um, so those two factors, the labour market perhaps um, cooling down and the wealth effect, what, what, would, what would your comments be on those two phenomena going forward? Well, there's a lot to unpack there. So let's start with the labour market. Uh, and again, tie it back, tie it back to the Fed. Um, one of the basic points that we made when the Fed implemented so-called flexible average inflation targeting, trying to average 2% over some unspecified time period, was they put in backward-looking conditions for monetary policy adjustment. Inflation had to get back to 2%. And the employment had to get back to its maximum level and then the prospect of an inflation overshoot for the Fed to begin raising interest rates. So the Fed was back, the Fed was backward-looking and Backward-looking policy, operating the backward-looking policy leads to overshooting. And that's a basic principle. And one, again, that the Fed um, forgot about, a, a, a principle from central banking history. So what's the state of the labor market right now? Well, we just got the job openings data for the month of May, uh, and it remains tremendously hot. What do I mean by that? Well, there's some... Uh, 11 and a quarter million unfilled jobs that companies are seeking to fill. And that gives 1.9 jobs available per unemployed job seeker. And that's pretty much unprecedented uh, in US history for there to be so much what we call in economics excess demand. Uh, and what the Fed is trying to do 
is to cool that excess demand. If we were to lose two, three, four million jobs that haven't yet been filled, or if we were to lose jobs and people then go to jobs that are open, we would still be in a situation of having more jobs than there are people looking for jobs. So that is just a, a, a the first point about the labor market is it, it's in a situation of, in my opinion, unprecedented excess demand. And again, that's something that, if you like, snuck up on the Fed um, as they were trying to get back to uh, maximum employment. Now, there are two ways you can tackle excess demand. There's the fortunate way that you referred to that maybe some of the 3 million people or so who have retired from the labor force come back. Yeah. And that's an increase in labor force participation. That's certainly something the Fed is hoping for. And sorry, John, um, that, that's amongst people predominantly who are over the age of, what, 55, do you think? Uh, or, 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 even, or even older. Um, but the aging, the, the aging of the population, and then this is something that my former colleague at the Bank of England, uh, Charles Goodhart, um, has uh, written on um, in terms of uh, the aging of the population is actually take a force against growth and risks higher inflation at a point that we have been making because the, 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 the percentage of the population who are of working age is declining because of the great retirement. Now, it, that great retirement was accelerated because of the pandemic. People who are near retirement and perhaps wealthier uh, because of increase in equity prices um, and also government income injections. We have to remember that the government cr created $2.5 trillion of savings, much more equitably distributed throughout the population uh, than the typical stock market increase through its direct income supports of, uh, of $1,200 and then subsequently $2,000, pretty much per taxpayer up to um, the, uh, in, in the bottom 80% of, uh, of the income distribution. So the question there is, are those people to some degree going to come back? Well, they might, but I don't see them coming back in a hurry. And they would have been retiring. It's, it's not so much that we lost people who were going to be working for a long time. It was people near retirement who accelerated their retirement. So that may come back. But again, that would be a case of running policy on the basis of hope over reason. That was exactly the mistake that was made in 2021, where the hope that inflation was transitory um, was misplaced. And reason and more careful data analysis and perhaps managing what should have been the greater risk would have led you to think that, uh, in fact, the risk was going to be that inflation wasn't going to be uh, transitory. Now, the second thing, so, so we've got the situation of excess demand and the Fed's trying to rein in the excess demand. And that's probably one of the reasons I think that recession fears are, are overdone because we're used to an economy which responds to demand. But now we're in a situation where the demand is in excess. And if demand pulls back, perhaps resources stay uh, fully employed. If the demand to buy uh, a new car falls, it may just allow people who are trying to buy cars uh, to actually make those purchases because we're production constrained because of a shortage um, of computer chips. Now, also in the labor market, we're seeing pretty fast wage increases. Uh, one of the more comprehensive measures, labor compensation per hour, 
from the non-farm sector, which includes some of the bonuses and one-off payments that we don't get in average hourly earnings, is running around 8% year over year, which sounds great. Labor hasn't seen anything like that. Unfortunately, the CPI, as I said earlier, is up 8.6% year over year. So people are getting paid more, but that money isn't going any further. So we have a very, very tight labor market, and we're not even yet seeing a situation where wages are pushing up prices. Prices are still running a little bit ahead of wages. We're not having a classic wage price spiral. So um, those are things that I, I think the Fed's beginning to, to think about in a, in a more um, serious manner, which is how to head off a wage price spiral kicking in over and above the inflation shock um, that we have had. And the state of the labor market is one that is extremely tight with an unemployment rate, not only of 3.6%, but with so many jobs, with almost two jobs available per unemployed worker um, who is uh, who is looking yeah. for a job. Yeah. And, um, and, and what about the wealth effect offsetting some of that? I mean, obviously, it doesn't have an impact on on wages, but but in in general terms, you know, it should remove some liquidity, I guess, some purchasing power from the economy. And let, let's face it, those of us in markets tend to be relatively more affluent. Um, may overestimate the impact of the wealth effect on the broader economy. Um, in terms of data historical behavior in the US, US consumer, the wealth effect was thought to be something like 4%. In other words, an increase in wealth of, say, a trillion dollars would tend to result in a $40 billion increase in spending, permanent increase in the level of spending. That, that, and that would, would take place over time and, and be sustained. It's, it, it's not... It's a slow adjustment process. So yes, we've had a tremendous increase in wealth in in equity prices. Um, obviously, given so far this year, about twenty percent of uh, those uh, of, of the uh, of equity wealth uh, back, as it were. Um, we've had a much bigger increase in um, crypto uh, prices and a much bigger decline. You know, that market has gone from close to $3 trillion to, to under a trillion dollars. Uh, that's a tremendous percentage loss of crypto wealth, but, but nevertheless, it's small, much smaller relative to the broader loss of, of, of equity wealth. The question is, how much of the, that increase in wealth over the last couple of years has got embedded uh, into the economy uh, on a sustained uh, basis? I think the more important component of wealth uh, was the income support that the government provided when people couldn't spend because the economy was shut down. And that sat in the form of liquid wealth. Uh, we're, we're seeing something like $2.5 trillion or more uh, of bank deposits that we probably wouldn't have seen. But if we just trended out the uh, past behavior uh, up to the uh, pandemic of where bank deposits are, we, we, we see that there's, the households have much more by way of liquid assets, and those liquid assets are something that are more likely to find a way uh, into spending. And right now, that leaves households less resistant to paying higher prices for things that they want to do. Um, 
you know, again, we're seeing it in the airline industry right now with uh, because of uh, shortage of pilots and, and others. Uh, we're seeing airlines pull hundreds of flights a day. Um, and yet people want to get out and travel. They've been cooped up for the last uh, couple yeah. of years. Uh, it's funny, and- isn't it? It's, it's, it's the reverse, isn't it, John, of what, what happened in, in the pandemic? I mean, then the price of stuff was going up and the price of experiences. Well, you couldn't have experiences because, you know, you basically certainly if you lived in Europe, you, you, you weren't you weren't allowed to. Now we seem to be seeing the price of stuff coming down. And obviously, the price of services generally, as you say, going going up, and that's a good example of one. Well, and yet it's not the price of all stuff that, that that's coming down. It it it's some things, and yes, we are seeing some encouraging signs in the commodity markets um, on steel prices, lumber prices, copper prices, things that are largely related to construction and the more interest sensitive sector of the economy, and, and, and also an area where we've had both steel and tar- and um, uh, and lumber were uh, very significantly uh, disrupted uh, by the uh, impact of the tariff policies um, of the previous administration as well. So we are seeing some things, but, but generally speaking, there's still a shortage. Like going back to cars, it, it's still, we're, we're still seeing significant upward pressure on new car prices. Uh, and the spillover of that, uh, one of the things that misled the Fed was the tremendous increase in used car prices as people had a greater desire to drive and not take public transport. Car companies couldn't make cars and those prices went up. It's basic supply demand economics at work that again, uh, because of the amount of money the Fed had created that sat in people's bank deposits through uh, fiscal injections, income support into the economy. has led people to say, well, okay, I'll, I, I want that car and I, I've got money sat in the bank deposit. And I'm going to try and buy it. And when you collectively have more people trying to buy uh, what what isn't available, that that's still keeping prices up. But now we have, um, a, you know, the price of experiences, services, by far the greater part of the economy. Um, and um, so th- those 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 that that situation of excess demand is something that, as economists, we're not used to seeing because we had grown up with um, a. a basically a model that said the problem is with the major problem with uh, economies is insufficient demand we're in a situation of excess supply we need to support that demand through fiscal policy through monetary policy so we're, we're in a different world and one that, that we're not used to uh, thinking about and i think that's uh, leading to some uh, to come, some dire predictions about the economy in the near term uh, that I think are um, misplaced. That's interesting. So we'll come on maybe to the market implications of, of that in a minute. But you mentioned demographics as one of the secular forces that may be pushing up inflation. Another one might be um, deglobalization or reshoring, partly on the back of geopolitical pressures and tensions, mainly with China. I mean, Russia, obviously, they've pushed commodity prices up. And in Europe, that's a disaster, which we might talk about in a minute, or potential disaster. But in the US, obviously, it's mainly China, I think, and the impact from uh, from China. So I don't know if you've got any thoughts about that and medium term impact of um, of that deglobalization process. I, I Again, um, if you think about it, why did um, this process of globalization take place. And again, it's another thing that Charles Goodhart writes about as well. Um, 
It took place because companies were trying to uh, save costs. We were in a world where the pressure was kept on prices, kept down on prices. And so companies to make profits had to seek ways to lower costs. And that was, for example, um, the, the, the thinking of Alan Greenspan. It's why he didn't want to target a given inflation rate. He wanted to keep ratcheting down uh, on uh, inflation pressures, even at relatively low rates, to force that uh, innovation. But whatever the source, companies adopted global supply chains because we production would gravitate to its lowest cost. The problem, uh, in many ways, if you like the manufacturing equivalent of the mistake that people in the bond markets made where they assumed funding, is to assume you could get that supply. And what we have learned is if you stretch out your supply chains, your supply lines too much, you rely on too many places, you have uh, a version of Adam Smith's pin factory where he you know, espoused the concept of the division of labor and specialization in reducing costs on a scale that Smith could never, uh, ever have imagined. Um, and now we found we can't get parts. Uh, and uh, a decision made uh, in a manufacturing region in China related to COVID has an impact on uh, what you can produce uh, in Ohio or, or in California or in Michigan. Um, so there is this natural desire to try and bring uh, shorten supply chains to diversify supply chains, and not just China, I India, Vietnam, and other countries in that part of the world in Asia have become uh, very important uh, manufacturing sectors. So if we globalized to reduce costs, then it follows that the process of reshoring is going to increase costs. And that's going to be um, to get greater certainty of supply, you're going to have to pay a premium for that. And that's going to add to um, the inflation problems. So we've gone from a world where we had favorable demographics and favorable supply chains through globalization. And favorable demographics was a, a, uh, a very uh, fast-growing uh, labor force, uh, partly with uh, more women working in the labor force, um, um, partly through just the age demographics at the time, to one where those demographics have become more difficult. And as we have more and more people retiring relative to the workforce, and also now we have the potential for uh, running a less efficient supply chain in terms of costs. So those are going to be two headwinds to getting inflation back down to the kind of levels that central bankers became uncomfortable with sub sub two percent. So those are those are those are two very important headwinds that monetary policy that helped monetary policy in the 1990s and 2000s and the 2010s that is now going to be an obstacle uh, to getting inflation down um, as we go forward. And so it, it, in many ways, it's been an unfortunate timing to have had the pandemic and to have had this monetary policy error in letting inflation out. When you know some of the what people might have thought the secular forces, uh, and the third secular force people then thought keeping inflation down was technology, and for and one of the uh, maybe may things not to be too pessimistic is, is the fact that we've become we've integrated technology as we are doing right now more into 
um, the um, production process, and and that is that is the great hope. Um, but uh, reshoring is going to be difficult. And the other thing about reshoring it um, is you have to have the infrastructure to reshore. Uh, and having infrastructure, I'm talking capital equipment infrastructure, public sector infrastructure, transportation infrastructure. Infrastructure just can't appear from nowhere. Infrastructure itself has to be produced. So we have to produce capital goods. We have to produce other things that we need to make that reshoring work at a time when there's no capacity in manufacturing to, to do that. So Again, it makes my, my concerns about fears of recession, the fears that people have of fears of recession, somewhat overblown because what, what we have, the old classic Paul Samuelson, the, 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 who taught macroeconomics through his textbook to many, many Americans uh, of a different generation than, the current, than, than this current generation of economists coming through, uh, more of my generation, um, it was guns or butter. With the idea of trade-offs, uh, and we're, we're we're maybe back in a it, it, we we got to the situation where people said, well, we can have guns and butter, um, and, and now we're we're in a situation where if we want we we want to get more um, reshoring, more capital equipment, we need to have less of something else, uh, and that that's what macro policy has to do. Monetary policy has to in raising rates. Um, it, it, it depresses some of those demands for um, uh, interest-sensitive uh, purchases. And, and of course, if we want less of something, it won't be less of guns, unfortunately, <laughs> because clearly what we're seeing at the moment is a part, you know, having worked in Eastern Europe and Russia in the 90s, I mean, what we're seeing now is a reversal partly of the peace dividend. And in the case of Germany, a more than reversal if they're really going to spend 2% of GDP or more on defence, which I, which I have an issue with, but, but it's possible, I suppose. Um, and that brings me neatly, perhaps, on to what impact the issues in the rest of the world might have on the US economy. And what you're describing so far, John, in a way, is that we're at the start of a sort of initial phase of a churning process, where holders of capital are going to be set by a number of um, secular issues and 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 indeed to some extent with inflation cyclical as well but but from what you're saying largely um secular um and at the same time the situation in the rest of the world and by the rest of the world particularly china where their growth model certainly to me appears to be running out of steam uh, which has an advantage in terms perhaps of commodity prices but disadvantages clearly in terms of the impact on the rest of the world but also in Europe, where in Europe, and I hope this is only metaphorical, we, we face a, a sort of nuclear winter, if you like, in terms of gas supply. And, and and I'm not sure people in the US generally have grasped quite how potentially serious the situation in, in, in Europe is likely to be this winter and, and the impact of uh, on economic growth. And in the US, obviously, one of the transmission mechanisms, and perhaps this applies more to the equity market than to the economy, is, is the stronger dollar. Um, and the impact on corporate earnings as well. So, so I just wondered if you had any thoughts on, on if you like, the, the world outside the US and the reflexivity of that back into the US economy. Well, you, you were... Um, I, I just want to just briefly start with what you said, more guns. You know, that's actually very important. Um, the US spent 6% of its GDP during the Cold War, roughly thereabouts, on... Uh, defense. And that fell to much closer to 2%. It was a three percentage point or so 
um, release of resources, as it were, in the economy that weren't being spent on defense. Now, the idea that um, we've gotten out of the Cold War becomes more questionable, and we're seeing this increase in defense spending. They call it the peace dividend, but unfortunately, the peace dividend wasn't saved. The peace dividend was spent on other things, and now you're right, and it's not just the U.S., other countries. So that becomes another uh, pressure, fiscal pressure, uh, and inherently defense spending is in a, it, it, it is socially unproductive in the sense that if there were no wars and we didn't need to spend in this, this utopian mind experiment, um, we, we didn't have to spend on defense, then those things could be spent on uh, health care, um, affordable housing, and all kinds of other things. Now, the pressure for those things haven't gone away. We do have the defense bank. So that's another, that's another pressure to... Another pressure to bear in mind, but we're also, you know, an example of globalization that puts in a strange situation where Europe, going into the uh, war in the Ukraine, got forty percent of its natural gas from Russia. So we're 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 in a situation where um, we're trying to sanction Russia, and. Um, force changes in behavior while still hoping that we can get the energy supplies, Europe hoping it can get the energy supplies that it needs. Now, in some ways, this is echoes of the 1970s. Um, Britain, uh, short of energy, that through labor disputes, uh, went on to a three-day work week. And that that was the prelude to uh, the really serious inflation problems uh, in the mid-1970s. Uh, and now we have a similar thing where, again, it's about the availability, not merely the price, but the availability uh, of energy. And it, it, it leaves Europe um, scrambling. Um, well, it's existential for German industry. I mean, you know, it re- really is. Well, ab- absolutely. And, and again, and it comes back to my sympathy with the importance of history. I remember early on in the uh, conflict, the war in the Ukraine, where I think a lot of, you look at the initial market responses, a, a lot of traders looked at what the sanctions said, oh, well, these sanctions aren't too serious. So um, I guess, uh, it, you know, the worst of the conflict from a market perspective is over. And I also said, well, you know, actually, if you look at the early days of the Second World War, um, and the defense that the, the, the phony war period where very little fighting took place and uh, France took comfort uh, in its defensive line only to find that the Germans just went around it. Um, though that, that sort of lesson of history might have said, well, we, we, have, we, we seem to be going back into a, a, a more Cold War type conflict We've got this war in the Ukraine. Perhaps we shouldn't just declare it over from a market perspective in a week. And I, and, and I do think that the, that the longer term um, impact, which is sort of accelerating the need for alternative energy sources. Uh, and um, right now, you know, we, with climate change being so high, uh, appropriately so on people's agenda, not people think, well, those alternative energy sources uh, be better if they're green energy sources. And so, again, that comes around again to the whole infrastructure issue that if you want to transition to green energy, 
the world has been underinvesting by about 50 percent uh, in what it needs to do to to accomplish that. OK, but I mean, if we so if we if we sort of tie that up, I mean, it, you know, it, it's it's not a fantastic outlook anywhere. But 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 the US, perhaps again, in terms of the currency and, and disagree with me by, by all means, but it looks almost still to be the best house in, in, in a bad neighborhood. And yet the dollar, you know, I mean, I, I haven't been to the US for a little while, but but people I know who live there and, and particularly people who travel over there from Europe just say it's extraordinarily expensive now by, by sort of any any standards. Um, so obviously purchasing parity doesn't really a, apply in, in this sort of context, but are we just going to see the dollar get increasingly overvalued against the euro, sterling, the yen, and virtually everything else? Well, I, I have known people to spend careers studying um, what drives the currency markets and coming to indeterminate conclusions. But I tend to think of it in two ways. One, it's a relative judgment of the soundness of money in one country versus another. And in the US, no doubt, is raising interest rates an awful lot faster than um, uh, than the Europe uh, and the Bank yeah, of England. For sure. Uh, for and sure. that brings money in to get to the benefit of those higher interest rates. And what happens <clears throat> is the currency strengthens and it has to strengthen to the point where it becomes overvalued so you can expect it to decline. Because if you're in a situation, for example, let's just say hypothetically that interest rates were 4% in the US and 1% in Europe. So you had a, a three percentage point gain each year from the interest differential and the currency persistently appreciated, you'd be getting an interest differential and you'd be getting the currency appreciation. So if you have this interest differential, then markets would say in equilibrium, you need to have a depreciating currency. Well, how do you get no, a depreciating currency? You have to overvalue. It has to become too overvalued. And, that, and again, that's one of those insights where you know, the economics is important. It, it's no good for a timing trading tool. But as a thought process, yes, in, the exchange rate has to, would likely have to become so overvalued that it's likely to decline. And you, you can go back uh, in the to my early days at the Bank of England and the problems of the uh, so-called twin deficits at the time, the fiscal deficit and the U.S. current account deficit. Don't look so big now in the context of the numbers that we currently see. Uh, and that did not prevent the dollar from becoming overvalued to the point in 1985, the central bankers um, got together uh, uh, under the um, Plaza Accord to yeah. Yeah. bring the currency down. I'm, I, I think we're a long way away from 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 that here. But that is an an epic. I mean, month after quarter after quarter, almost a couple of years. You know, we we, we sat there saying, you know, when's the dollar going to break? When's the dollar going to fall? Uh, and so, you know, that's an important lesson of history. The currency markets can run an awful lot further. Uh, than uh, one one would think. So yes, it, to use no, your analogy, that's, that's... the U.S. the dollar, um, even though it's slowly diminishing uh, in its role in global markets, in the sense that the percentage of transactions that are done in dollars are are, are coming down a little bit, it's still some sixty percent of world foreign exchange reserves are, are held in dollars, uh, and. Um, uh, I, I, I don't see that as a big number uh, changing 
in the in the near future and so we may see a no, more of a value diversification is a story for the next cycle isn't it you know the next secular cycle really i think rather than this one so so just sort of tying tying it up from from what you're from what you're saying in terms of the impact on financial markets and i read your comments as well about the um about about the us equity market um there's, there's from a last allocation perspective is is there really anything to be done at the moment for example should one be reallocating towards bonds. I mean, bonds were the most hated asset class by a mile at the start of this year. And I noticed now, and perhaps it's just due to the declining commodity prices, which you talked about earlier, which may just be because, you know, in a market where it's the only thing going up, people just pile into them and they, they just became very, very, very crowded, uh, very crowded trades. But, but we have seen bond yields edge off the edge off the highs over the last month albeit with some volatility they've gone up again recently should should people be looking do you think to allocate to um you know u.s government bonds at the moment Let, let's assume that you know spreads if anything with corporate bonds are likely to widen if, if given given what you're saying i suspect well as an economist i should not be in the business of telling people what they should do in terms of um investment decisions. But I'll make a, a few observations of things that have changed. The big thing that has changed and was very clear in June is that the Fed is committed to defeating inflation. And my view is that inflation is more entrenched than the Fed thinks. So the price the Fed is going to pay if it's truly committed in terms of interest rates is that it's going to raise interest rates more than it thinks. Now, right now, the Fed's signaling it thinks the appropriate interest rate at the end of this year is 3.4% and 3.8% at the end of next year. And then perhaps it'll be cutting interest rates a little bit uh, in 2024. If inflation is more persistent, then those rate increases are likely going to go higher. So that tends to argue against uh, plunging into longer term uh, yields um, yeah, yeah. thinking that the interest rate cycle has turned. Though I do think there are encouraging signs in the decline in commodity prices and in the nature of the bond market sell-off. There's another thing we've written about. The yeah. bond market sell-off this year was a move to higher real yields. That's a move to tighter policy. We just don't know how tight that policy needs to be. My view is given these headwinds to inflation, policy is going to have to be tighter than you think in order to get inflation down. But that's a major, major change in mindset. And that makes holding financial assets more favorable relative to holding physical assets. Because if the Fed ultimately gets inflation back down to 2%, then many of these commodity plays uh, are going to fall. So I think there is a reallocation that, that, that people might want to think about from their inflation hedges and physical assets into financial assets. Now, within financial assets, equities, bonds, I think it's pretty tricky because while the equity market has fallen to a round number of about 20%, um, we haven't seen panic. We haven't seen the kind of volatility increase. It feels like the market's volatile from day to day. Much of that volatility seems now in the bond market. But we haven't seen the kind of volatility, say, in the VIX, that has been associated with equity market bottoms. Um, you know, A pretty good rule of thumb is when VIX gets to 40 um, that's when you're in that kind of panic sell-off, which has paid to buy uh, and hold uh, over a period of time and has been a good entry point into equities. What we've seen so far 
is the same process. We have seen a rise in corporate bond yields, a rise in treasury yields, and a decline in equity prices coming from a fall in multiples. And that the equity market multiple is the inverse of the bond yield. So as bond yields have gone up, equity multiples have declined. We haven't seen profits decline. Uh, and that yes, and that's something yes, that concerns yes. me about making a, a big commitment of capital um, it, it is that if recession is inevitable, then it would be a, a, a relatively unprecedented event in history for us to be hitting the bottom in the equity market at this point before the earnings cycle um, has even turned out. So uh, I don't think uh, the, if Chair Powell's watchword for monetary policy is nimble, that's probably a good watchword for um, investors to use. Um, yes, I do think the bond market's in a better position now. And if you were thinking about committing some capital, uh, then you know maybe now's the time to stick a toe or two uh, in the water. But but I don't think at this point to go um, all in. Um, and and I, as I, said, I do think interest rates are probably going to rise more than uh, more than people expect. Yeah, that's very clear, John. I mean, we're clearly in a churning process at the moment, and we've just, I suppose we've got to be fairly pragmatic. Um, and as you do, watch the data, right? Watch what's coming out and um, just see how things how things develop. Thank you, thank you very well, much indeed. Watching the data and tying it into these economic ideas is the core yes. thing that we try and do at RDQ Economics. Uh, and we, you know, for, for the US, we follow those uh, data releases uh, and uh, try not to hold on to a view that is being shown to be increasingly tentative in the way that the Fed held on to the view that inflation was transitory for uh, too long.